This is In My Honest Opinion, a collection of NBR's top columnists from this week. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. In this week's column, Duncan Garner looks at another ministerial misstep and also how the ever-increasing cost of living could impact the government. Duncan, it couldn't have been an easy week for Chris Hipkins, especially mm. from afar. No, and these trips, especially to China, they're strategic trips, you know, they don't happen often. This has been four years in the making, I think, since COVID. Um, so a really significant trip. This, these, this is the, the country that's going to keep us, hopefully, out of a recession more often than not, you know. These are the people that buy our products. So we need to be on good terms with them. Uh, Hipkins needs some clean air, some clear air. He needed to be seen on the world stage first time, properly on the world stage. How impressive was he? Did he get did, did he get a grip of this? Uh, was he well respected? Did he t- did he say the right things? I don't know because Kitty Allen was back here in trouble, you know. And the the media was much more focused because there were more of them here, and they were more focused on um, the comings and goings of Kitty Allen, who appears to. Um, she's an okay minister, but she appears to have a personal life that um, creeps into politics quite a bit. So, yeah, not good for Hipkins. He didn't need it. Mm. On Kerry Allen, you do seem to say that she's being a bit demonised. Um, voices are raised in Parliament. It's a mm. tough place to work. So what? Is she, a, is she a scapegoat for this? Well, she does things her coasty style, she says. I'm sure if you're on Kerry Allen's team, you are on her team. You know, and I'm sure if she's got your back, she's got your back. Uh, did she raise her voice? Well, their, their argument is there's to be no formal complaint. Now, that's a very, very specific answer, which is, of course she would have raised her voice, but there's been no formal complaint because the public servant's not going to complain about a minister probably raising her voice. She raised her voice. Muldoon, Longy, Bolger, Clark. These guys have got foul mouths and, and big mouths. They are, It's a tough game. I, I, it's not tiddlywinks. And, and I, I just seem to think... Uh, it's a bit out of, out of proportion, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Mm. Now on to petrol costs, which have gone up um, at the wrong time, start of school holidays, mm. um, and as other costs just keep on rising and rising. Must be quite a bad look for the government. Yeah, I, I think there was, there was another way around this. You know, They're desperately saying, oh, we needed the money. Well, spend less somewhere. You know, At the end of the day, these guys allowed the petrol tax to go back on. It was their placement. They, it's their priority. They decide this. They put this back on at the beginning of the school holidays when hundreds of thousands of New Zealand mums and dads are likely to jump in the car and run their kids around town, if not go on a longer trip. They made that decision. It's a reminder to every mum and dad who are going to put petrol in the next few days. Oh, they put that back up. It's, it's really bad optics. Um, so you combine that as a headline, with um, Kitty Allen as a headline, and Hipkins was largely overshadowed by his own team when he was in China, which is, um, for him, he needed he needed, he needed needed some more clear air, he needed more loyalty from those guys, and he needed them to be more organised, and I think it looks messy. Mm. Also, last week, the Ministry of Business revealed that 100,000 households this winter mm. won't be able to pay their power bills. Mm. It's sort of a compounding um, story, isn't it? Yeah, well, they probably can't pay their p- um, petrol bills or their food bills as well. This is really starting to compound. It's not 100,000 people, as you say, it's 100,000 households. And you times that by 2.7, that's what they do uh, on the maths. So it's 270,000 voters that could change a government, you know. Mm. 270,000 voters who will be unhappy, 270,000 voters who may not have had any help or may not get much help in the middle, you know. 270,000 people is a lot of people to, in this country, in this first world country, to not be able to afford a power bill. Mm. Uh, is our power too expensive? Do they warn us about this all along? Um, again, it's just one of those things that compounds and compounds. And it's great, this is great for national because this is the economic story. Not enough money uh, in people's pockets or diminishing money because of inflation. 
And the basics are now not being able to be afforded. Power, petrol, food. Those are the sort of basics that you need for shelter and, and for um, sustainability in, in terms of, as a human being. And they're struggling. We're not even talking about luxuries now. We're talking about the basics of human life. I think it'll get more grim before it actually gets better. Do you think people will blame the government? They always do. But they don't blame themselves. People don't like to point the finger at themselves. And many of them probably can point them point at themselves. But this is a government issue. It's always, always about the economy. It's so close to the election. And here's the crucial um, fact. Not one government has had a recession in election year and continued to be in government after the election. Uh, recessionary governments don't hold office in this country. And you watch this. Mm-hmm. How much of it is about storytelling? You know, we've got this bread and butter image that's going on. Uh, mm. Can they pull that one off? Well, they've got a slippery slope image, haven't they? I mean, there's, there's butter on somewhere, but you've got so many ministers that are falling by the wayside, and Kitty Allen's in a bit of trouble. I don't think it's, I don't think it's sackable. You know, it's, people break up relationships and all, all sorts of stresses, and good on for having mental health um, days. You know, in the past, it would be seen as a weakness. In fact, Labour used to use that card against people. Oh, they're mentally, you know, tr- troublesome and so forth. So that's come the full circle. Um, I, I, I just think this is, it, it adds up to a very negative package for the government. And it's all in Nationals' favour. They don't have to say much. In fact, probably best of Luxon doesn't say too much. He has to sit back and watch inflation eat away at people's incomes, eat away at their lifestyles, eat away at their standard of living, and then they'll change the government. What could Luxon do better? What could National do better? He needs more votes. Luxon's not registering with women or, or young people, and that's really significant. Uh, they're confident, national, people I've spoken to are national confident that that will come, but when? We're pretty close to an election now, and they are campaigning. This, this, is, this will be the longest, this is a deathly campaign. It's going to be three months, because it, it is, because they know what the finish line, where it is. And so you go three months, and it's wet, it's miserable. Um, I think it's. I mean, I don't want to talk talk ourselves into a trough, but we need to see inflation come down significantly. We need to see there's a pathway to success. There, there are some green shoots in the economy. I think interest rates have largely um, run their course on the way up. But again, if intra, if um, inflation stays high, then they have to do something. Um, we're not out of the woods yet, you know. Although I do notice the housing market just some signs because I'm, I'm I've been in it and out of it and then back in it. There's some signs of life. Um, I think the bottoms potentially been if not then it's close because there's a huge big bubble of people in the next three months that go onto the big mortgages again that's the biggest chunk if you look at the reserve bank numbers so they're going to face some really tough times these people are going to have to find a thousand bucks a week some of them a thousand bucks a week in an environment where it's a funny recession because there are there are still our jobs you know but who's getting a thousand dollar pay rises a week not many people so some people can move money around and find it, but not everyone. So you look at and look at the numbers of sales that are starting to occur. It's mm-hmm. quite a bit, and a lot of lot of um, empty buildings. Mm-hmm. Duncan, thanks for your time. You're welcome. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. While everyone's focused on ram raids, there is a much more rapidly expanding threat that isn't getting the attention it deserves. Maria Slade writes in this week's Flipside. Maria, what sort of threat are we talking about? <laughs> We're talking about cybercrime, Hamish. Okay. And it was interesting. God, never look at crime statistics. They are so difficult to interpret. But I had a look at what Christopher Luxon was saying the other day about violent crimes up 33-odd percent. Well, according to my reading of the statistics, more like about 22 percent. But, you know, okay. the point yep. being, crime is up, yes, and this is a problem. But there's another type of crime that is up 
exponentially, and that is online crime. We're talking scams and frauds and cybersecurity, that kind of thing. And nobody really knows the true extent of it. Mm. But uh, by the bank's own assessment, it was close to 200 million's worth got fleeced um, from people in one year. Uh, last year, and um, this is the tip of the iceberg. Everybody involved in the sector says so that you know because people don't like to report this kind of thing. So mm. it's likely to be much, much greater. So while ram raids and you know um, attacks on the local dairy are, are terrible crimes and very visible crimes, there's there's this sort of existential threat that um, poses uh, a huge uh, threat to New Zealanders and uh, confidence in things like traditional um, institutions that are doing the right thing. You know, people, everyone's terrified everyone's getting texts and emails the whole time so it's a very big problem. Yeah it only seems to be intensifying right? Yes indeed. So are we doing anything about online crime? Well, again, this is very interesting. The Australians have geared up and they have formed an anti-scam agency by merging uh, various bodies in the sector to combat it. And they have just launched what they call an investment scam fusion, which is um, focused particularly on investment scams, which we have seen a great deal of. Just recently, the Australians reckon about a $1 billion was fleeced out of Australians last year. So it's a big problem there. So you know, likely to be just as big a problem here. In Singapore, they have a similar centralised scam agency, and our banking sector is now looking enviously at that and looking at how we might be able to replicate the model. In New Zealand, we still have this disparate, disparate, I should say, set of agencies, everyone from the Commerce Commission to Department of Internal Affairs, police, you name it. There's this range of bodies that uh, do important jobs, but in in a separate manner are looking at various aspects of the problem. Uh, And so we haven't gone down this route of coordinating that response as yet. Yeah. Uh, is the government making any moves though? Or? Well, it emerged just this week that yeah. in actual fact, what they're trying to do is they want to merge CERT New Zealand, which is the consumer facing body, the con- consumer emergency response team, in with a, a, an intelligence agency, um, which is part of the government's communication security bureau, because these two agencies do focus on cybercrime, but in a different way. And uh, this seems to have been done completely on the down low. The security community wasn't particularly aware of it. Certainly agencies like NetSafe or even our own parliamentary press gallery who watch the government's every move knew nothing about it. And it was only when uh, I started making inquiries and a couple of other media started making inquiries that GCSB Minister Andrew Little put out a statement um, just on Monday night confirming that they are looking at merging these two bodies. And the cyber security sector is just up in arms because they say it's being done in haste without consultation and risks all sorts of unintended consequences because once you start getting into the intelligence sphere, that's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. Do we have a sort of broader cyber security strategy or is this the first step in trying to create one? Well, this is what they're saying. There isn't Mm. a broader strategy. And in the face of exponentially rising cybercrime over the last sort of four or five years, the government doesn't seem to have come out with any kind of comprehensive strategy. And we risk um, making all sorts of mistakes by this. And there has been a certain amount of consultation. They set up a ministerial advisory community. But the body, I should say. But for some reason, they don't seem to have wanted to talk more widely than that. And as one uh, commentator said to me, it seems like they've said, we've got these two agencies with cyber in their name. We'll just shove them together (laughs) in a good old sort of, you know, mega merger kind of fashion. Stranger things have happened, probably. Yes. And it just seems to me that, you know, while there's a lot of talk about tough on crime and and all the rest of it, uh, if they could coordinate their response to this threat more effectively, they would be protecting a, a far greater 
uh, and growing number of Kiwis uh, from a problem that really does hurt people. There's some free policy advice. Maria, thanks very much for your time. (laughs) Thank you. The All Whites abandoning a recent game against Qatar following an allegedly significant racial slur could come at a cost for New Zealand football, writes Martin Devlin in this week's Playing the Ball. Martin, why don't we start by recapping what we know about the incident? It was a couple of weeks ago now. Yeah, Hamish, um, so the All Whites were playing a friendly match against Qatar, and this was in Austria, I think it was. Uh, two matches they played on two, played against Sweden, and then this one. Uh, just before halftime, there was a clash of players on the pitch. Uh, one of their guys went down for a free kick. Obviously, one of our guys said something to him. He responded by saying something, which was described by New Zealand football CEO Andrew Pragnall as a, quote, significant racial slur. Uh, our guys go into the dressing room. Um, they phone Pragnall. Um, and the emotion of the moment, they think that it's um, so important that they, they won't come out again for the second half. And that's because they went to the referee to ask him to do something. And the referee said, I didn't hear it. Uh, so we abandoned the match. The players and were incensed, started. right? They were the the reaction on field was really strong. Yeah, well, you know, and this is the this is the peculiar thing about it because um, the reaction on the field, obviously, something was said. However, about four or five days after this, and this is one of those beautiful ones where, in hindsight, you can sit back, look at it, and go, okay. Because at the time, I remember this was, you know, uh, a week ago uh, last it was a week last Tuesday, thinking. Wow, this is pretty serious. You know, we, we've done the right thing here. As more information came through over the days and it unfolded, I think clearly that it was an overreaction and it probably a stupid one in the end. Um, stupid in that the consequences could be really serious for New Zealand football. I'm not in any way um, saying that, you know, uh, not responding to something racist on the field is, a, you know, I mean, you have to. I mean, racism is BS. I don't care where it comes in the world. I mean, as a society, as a human, as, as a human we've got every. You know, you've got to challenge racism wherever you see it. There's just no, there's no place for it in the world. I agree with that. Um, but when, when the guy who Michael Boxer, who's the guy that the comment was made at, said several days later that he wasn't personally offended by it, mm-hmm. and that also, and he described it as something colloquial that you would say, that changed it all for me at that stage because if he's not personally offended by it, even though he said he didn't think there's a place for it on the field, well, why the heck are the rest of our guys abandoning that game? And I think. You know, it's, it's left us in a, a really invidious position now where FIFA have been handed the moral high ground. And as I say in column Amish, say that out loud a few times. <laughs> FIFA have the moral high ground. Yeah, uh, yeah. We don't want to be in the position where they have the moral high ground. So where where is it at? Is it still being investigated or what's, what's actually yeah. right? Yeah, so okay. look, you know, the protocols now that they go through, FIFA have an investigation process. And, you know, the waters get very muddied because, you know, as I explained, justice is not a one-way street. Somebody's said something, and we're incensed by it. Okay. Um, however, if a referee and the lines people didn't hear it, well, then, you know, we can't then say, hey, we take the law into our own hands. Because the Qataris, 24 hours later, came out and said that, when in actual fact, their players were racially abused. Now, I know our mainstream media have scoffed and mocked at this, but, you know, I think there's a real racial element to the fact that why just because they're from Qatar they're lying. I'm not saying that you know they're telling you know they might be telling porkies. I, I don't I don't know, but just because they claim something does that mean that they're lying and we're the guys who are absolutely innocent? Honestly, if you can sit there and you can say to me, every single New Zealand athlete uh, would never say something untoward on the field, would never take drugs, would never cheat. I mean, come on, wake up. Yeah. You know that's not the case. There was an exchange between these players on the field. That's what we know, and you know. If you just break it down to the most simplistic terms here, you know, something has happened, two men have clashed, 
One of them's fallen over for a free kick. I reckon that one of our guys said, get up, you pons, or something like that at him. This guy's turned around, and he said something colloquial. Now, he's an African player who's playing for Qatar, because Qatar buy a lot of their players. You know, they're half of them are Brazilians, half of them from other countries and things. And I think what he said is the N-word. Like, he said something like, duh, duh, N. And for Michael Boxwell to describe it as colloquial means that this guy's probably... Maybe it's the vernacular he uses around his mates. Maybe he thinks he's a rap star, you know, like, I mean, I don't know. And so he's used this term. No, there's no place for it on the field. But just, you know, at that time, calm heads were needed. And that's when the CEO, Andrew Cragnell, who was rung at half time for New Zealand football, that's when he needed to behave like a CEO and not a fan and actually say, OK, guys, I'm in charge here. I'll deal with this. You get out and play because now we're in a position where we've decided to take the law into our own hands. We've walked off the field. FIFA can do what they want to us here. Mm-hmm. They can fine us. They can suspend our team. That's And they're perfectly entitled and legit to do that now. Because um, we broke their rules. It's a tough one, though, right? Because FIFA, so many players of so long have criticised FIFA for seemingly not doing anything when these sorts of incidents happen. So... I mean, I can see, I can sort of understand why the team felt like they needed to do this as well. Um, do you see where they're coming from in the, in the heat of the moment? Yeah, at look, I do. Yeah. I do. But at the same time, you know, as I say, hindsight's a wonderful thing to look back at this. Now, in hindsight, if you ask them, would they would do the same again? You know, the fact is, if the referee didn't hear it, he didn't hear it. Now, that's all there is to it. And, you know, you're obliged as a player on the field. You have to go by what the referee says. Now, you know, so what are we implying? That the referee deliberately didn't hear it? I mean, come on. I mean, then you're calling into, into question that guy's integrity, aren't you? If he didn't hear it, he didn't hear it. So because he didn't hear it, then the process is you make a legitimate complaint and you let the process take its take its play, okay, how it does. You don't take the law into your own hands and decide we are the law. And that's where we, I believe, are in the wrong here. Mm. And that's where, you know, I start the column by saying I'm hoping FIFA doesn't fine us because, you know, we can't afford to fine New Zealand football. We don't make any money. And that's the, you know... And economic punishment would be really harsh on our association because we rely heavily on the FIFA money to even survive and make ends meet. Um, we're in a real pickle over this. And it might be we might be fully justified in being completely outraged by what was said. Um, but when the guy it's said to isn't fully outraged by it, I think that changes the balance of this whole story. Martin, thanks very much for your time. Okay. And that's been this week's In My Honest Opinion. To get your opinions heard, head on over to nbr.co.nz.